Genesis 22. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking you're kidding. You've got to be kidding. It's Easter and you're still going to teach from Genesis. See, for those of you who have been around a while, you know this. Those of you who are visiting this morning, you don't know that we've been in Genesis, oh, since October. <laughs> and we're just rolling along. We're on the through the Bible in a decade plan. And uh, I'm excited about that. Actually, it's amazing to me how, how this all kind of happened, how it all fell together this morning for what we're going to talk about. That we happened to land on Genesis 22 on Sunday when we res- recognized the resurrection in Jesus. It's an amazing thing, and I think you'll see that this morning. Why don't you open up your Bibles again, Genesis chapter 22, and if you need a Bible, we've got extras in the back, you can just raise your hand and we'll pass one up, make sure you get one. Um, it's, it's a good way to kind of follow along, stay awake, you know, whatever it takes. Genesis 22, verse 1, tells us it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, we looked at this last week. And just to bring you up to speed, something that is absolutely amazing in these two verses. This is the first time in the Bible when the word love is used. We've talked about a lot the idea of first mention. When a word is mentioned the first time in Scripture, in the Bible, there's a great deal of significance to that. And you see that as words show up and you read them in the context. And this word love is used. Take now your only son whom you love, Isaac, and offer him up. What's amazing about that is if you go to the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, in those three Gospels, the first mention of the word love is when Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water and the Father says to the Son, This is my Son, whom, whom my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. First mentioned in the Old Testament, Abraham who loves his son Isaac. First mentioned in the New Testament, God loving his son Jesus. But what's even more amazing than that is the first time love is mentioned in the book of John is when it reads, For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. In the same way that God called Abraham, challenged Abraham to offer up his son Isaac as a a sign of, of faithfulness, obedience, and love to God. In the same way, God offers his own son Jesus to die for us. As you'll see in the story this morning, God stays Abraham's hand. But when it came to his own son, he did not. Well, why is that? Because he loves us so much more. It is a stunning thought that God loves you and I so much that even his own son would die for that love. Amazing. Well, the Bible, the Bible is a picture book. And I'm just going to speak as loud as I can. This thing just annoys me. The Bible is a picture book. I realized this a long time ago when I was a kid. That the Bible is a picture book. We had a a big uh, picture book when I was growing up, a big white family Bible. Some of you may have had those in your homes. And I remember as a kid in the days before Nintendo and and all the things that now keep our kids very focused in one place, draining their brains. 
I realized I would lie down in our living room and I just kind of flip through the pages of this picture Bible because there were some very vivid portraits in that Bible. Creation. It was an awesome picture of creation happening. And Adam and Eve in the garden. I liked Eve. There was... I was a young boy. What can I say? The flood. A terrifying picture of the flood. Babel being built and God scattering the people. Samson. I love that picture. The picture of Samson, the strong man, in between the two pillars in the temple. And even if you don't know the story, an amazing story where God strengthens Samson in his blindness. And he's captured by the Philistines and he just busts the temple wide open. Awesome picture. Or Jesus walking on the water. That was cool. When we got a swimming pool at age five, I grew up in California where you can do that kind of thing, and I tried and tried and tried to walk on that water. <laughs> One time fully clothed. It didn't work out very well. But there were two pictures in this Bible that I went back to again and again and again. The crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. For in the crucifixion there, Jesus on the cross, in agony, in, in terror, in horror of the loneliness that he felt in those moments, nailed up there. Many of you have seen the passion. You're understanding maybe all of us a little bit more of what Jesus truly went through. And I'll tell you, the passion misses the mark. It's not quite as close as what truly happened. You say, oh, how could that be? It's a brutal, violent, bloody movie. Yeah, but this is reality we're talking about. And I would look at that picture of Jesus on the cross and just think, this is so odd, it's so strange, it's so violent to be in a Bible. But then to flip a few pages over and see the picture of the resurrection. Oh, it was a great painting. The stone rolled back and Jesus standing there, white robed in glory. The sun was beaming down on him. Light was shooting out of his arms and his eyes and everything. It was just overwhelming. I thought, now that, I, I, want, I want to be like that. I want to be there someday. I, I want to know him. Man, Samson can crush a temple and die, but Jesus, he can live. Even after the crucifixion. The Bible is a picture book. And I'm talking about this Bible right here, not the one with the paintings that I grew up with. The Bible, it's a picture book. It is full of vivid portraits. But listen, as you draw back, as you begin to understand and see the big picture, this book full of pictures is truly a book with one picture. The picture of Jesus Christ. And the more you study it, we have been in Genesis, like I said, for months studying through this book. And we have talked about Jesus every single time we've opened it. Because he's everywhere. He's represented everywhere. He is needed everywhere. Every time you turn the page as you read the Bible, Jesus is there. And this morning is a stunning example of that. You're going to see clearly something develop right before your eyes. I remember also growing up Polaroid cameras when they first came out. Now, kids today don't even know Polaroid cameras. They know digital. In fact, little Leticia, Jeff and Penelope's daughter, when they take a picture with their camera, the first thing she does, three years old, is, let me see, let me see, let me see. She wants to see it right away because she can. Picture, there it is. Not with Polaroids. They had to wait. <laughs> oh, gather around, gather around. It's coming in clearly now. Oh, wow. Oh, I can see images. Oh, wow. It's like it was magic or something. Amazing. But as you study through Genesis 22, let me tell you this morning, that will be your experience. Like a Polaroid coming into focus. At first you begin to think, okay, Rick, you're, you're telling me that chapter 22 of Genesis talks about Jesus. Absolutely. Okay, I might be able to buy that, but it's kind of gray right now. It's kind of cloudy, kind of shadowy and dark. I don't see it. Watch closely as the story unfolds before you. Starting in verse 3. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son, which is what you say when someone calls your name. Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there. And arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac. And laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, all together now. Here I am. Very good. (laughs) He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Reading on verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose, and they went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Jesus is all over this story before we look more closely let's pray Father would you give us insight this morning and clarity would you develop this picture for us Lord so that we can see and understand and know your plan was not just second thought not an afterthought Lord but that you had this planned out from the beginning help us to see these things this this morning Father and Holy Spirit be our teacher Get me out of the way and show us, Lord, what you would have us to know. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said in verses 1 and 2, you see the first mention of the word love. But I have to ask a question. God tells Abraham to go to Moriah to sacrifice his son. And I wonder why so far? Why did he have to travel such a difference? It was some 30 miles, which in those days was quite a distance. A three-day journey for Abraham. He's an old man by now. Well over a hundred, he, he is taking his son and these two servants, and now they have to travel for three days, which is part of the reason I believe Abraham rode the donkey, because he's old. Traveling that far would be very difficult for him. Why not use one of the altars he'd already built? He, he built one in Hebron. There's another one in Shechem. There's one between Bethel and Ai. He built altars everywhere he went. Why not just use one already there, close by? Why Mount Moriah? 
Folks, God knew what he was doing. You see, this is actually a preview of coming attractions. A sneak preview, if you will. What, what coming attractions? Two of them. God knew that this was the very site that the temple was going to be built in Jerusalem by King Solomon. On Mount Moriah, very same place. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 tells us, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. See, God had chosen Mount Moriah as the place of sacrifice. Which is why he sent Abraham in the first place to Mount Moriah. It's also why the temple was built there. Because in Judaism, you have to have the temple for the sacrifice. Because the sacrifice takes place in the temple. Which is why, why right now, in Passover, over the last couple thousand years, actually since A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, Jews can no longer sacrifice. You can't just take a lamb out into the field and sacrifice it somewhere. And during the Passover meal, all across the world this past week, Jews, as part of the plate, had a shank bone of a lamb. That shank bone of the lamb is supposed to indicate the, the mighty strong arm of the Lord, but it also indicates the lamb that they can no longer sacrifice because the temple is gone. But you see, Mount Moriah was not just a sneak preview of the sacrifice in the temple, rather of... Jesus himself, for that's where he was sacrificed. Luke 23:33 tells us, When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other one on the left. The place of the Skull, Golgotha. Golgotha, Calvary, Calvary, Mount Moriah. It's the same place. Now, some of you know that. You've heard that. You understand, okay, there's something to this. Abraham and Isaac, the temple, Jesus, all in the same place on the same mountain just outside of Jerusalem there. You may not know that the word Moriah has a stunning meaning. Moriah itself means foreseen of Yah. Literally foreseen of Yahweh. The name of the mountain is foreseen by God. So actually what God is saying at the very beginning of this chapter when he talks to Abraham is take your son, your only son, your only begotten son to the place, Mount Moriah, that I have foreseen. Oh, one other word there. When he tells Isaac to offer up his son, or Abraham to offer up his son Isaac, the word offer there is a law. A law in the Hebrew means lift him up. So he's saying, take your son to Mount Moriah, the place that I've foreseen, and lift him up. Jesus said in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And in John 12.32 he says, And I, if I'm lifted up, lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. This movie, The Passion, that again, many of you have seen, it's been a focus of an awful lot of attention. And what's interesting is in the Middle East, Arabs are flocking to see the movie. Muslims want to see The Passion. Why? Because they hear it's anti-Semitic. The Jews really get it. Alright, it's my kind of movie. So they go to see it. And folks, word on the street in the Middle East is that Muslims are coming to Christ because of it. Walking out of the theaters... Weeping, because Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Abraham, take your son Isaac and go lift him up 
on the place of sacrifice that I have foreseen, Mount Moriah. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day... Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now watch closely. The picture becomes even more clear. Abraham takes two young men with him. Interesting. In the same way, the Bible points out that Jesus went to Moriah, Golgotha, Calvary, with two men on either side of him. Two criminals. Two thieves. Two men. Well, how long did it take Abraham to reach Moriah? As I said before, three days. That's fascinating to me. He traveled a distance of three days. Jesus spent three years in public ministry. From the time that he proclaimed that the kingdom of God is near and began to teach and preach and to heal and to love people in that amazing three-year period of time to the end of that period of time was exactly three years. But furthermore, for Abraham, consider this. From the moment God said, sacrifice your son, until God stopped him from sacrificing his son, it was three days. Isaac was dead to Abraham for three days. As far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was dead meat. He was history. He was toast. He was not going to be around. Abraham had to walk with that, deal with that, consider that, think about that, all the way to Moriah for three solid days. Just like Peter and James and John, the apostles, Mary, some of the other women who, who loved Jesus so much, sat for three days thinking he was dead. He was. But how could anybody come back? Everything that he taught, everything that they thought was true about Jesus, were we wrong? Did, did we miss something? Abraham thinking, wait a minute, God gave me Isaac. Did I miss something here? Am I wrong? He's dead to me now. Three days. Mark chapter 10 verse 33 says, Jesus speaking, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. The rising is the reason we're here this morning, isn't it? Look at verse 5 of Genesis 22. The picture begins to become more clear. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and we will return to you. Two interesting things here. Number one is that it was just Abraham and Isaac that went up the mountain. It was an issue between father and son. In the same way on the cross, though there were people all around, scattered around, watching this go on, the true issue was between father and son. It was a sacrifice the son had to make to meet the righteous requirements of the father. The crucifixion, well I'm getting ahead of myself, but I've got to tell you the crucifixion was not the work of man. People say, I'm not sure I want to see that movie because you know, it is anti-Semitic. Guess what? The Jews did not kill Jesus. Oh yeah, that's right, it was the Romans. No, the Romans did not kill Jesus. Well, who killed Jesus? Well, we did. No, not quite. But hang on, we'll get there. Abraham makes an assumption in verse 5 that amazes me. He says, hey, stay here guys. Isaac and I, we, we, we will return after we worship. He made a resurrection assumption. Abraham, before he headed up the mountain with Isaac, says, oh, we're coming back. Isaac and I, we'll be back. You guys wait here. We're going to go worship God. We're going to come back. How do you know? How could he possibly have known? Resurrection, by the way, had never occurred in any way, shape, or form since then 
It hadn't happened. Even at the point of Jesus' resurrection, there have been a few instances where people were reported to have resurrected from the dead. But at Abraham's day, it had never happened. But he makes an assumption without any historical precedent. He believed Isaac would be resurrected. Okay, now we're making a leap into Abraham's head. How could you possibly know that he thought Isaac was going to be resurrected? Book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17 tells us, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. He considered, verse 19, that God is able to raise people from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now listen to that. Don't miss that. He received Isaac back, the Bible tells us, as a type. What do you mean type? As a picture. What do you mean picture? As a portrait of someone else who would be received back from the dead. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. Abraham knew that Isaac was going to return, so-called, from the dead. So did God. God knew Jesus was going to return. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so the two of them walked on together. The symbolism here is, is stunning. First of all, that Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice up Mount Moriah. Why did Isaac carry it? Abraham's an old man. And by the way, Isaac is not a child. There's another indication that he's not a child. is He's carrying the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain. Can you imagine me saying to my son Hayden, seven years old, Okay, Hayden, we're going to go up the mountain, we're going to build an altar, do a sacrifice, and I want you to carry the wood. And I put a big load of wood on his little back, it's not going to happen. But Isaac carried the wood right up the side of the mountain, just as Jesus carried the wood of the cross up the very same mountain for his own sacrifice. The father lays the wood on the back of the son. But this is interesting to me. Abraham carries fire and the knife. So apparently all the way from where they had left, the three-day journey, he'd been carrying the fire, bringing it along with them. They had to do that in those days. Didn't have matches, lighters. And so Abraham's carrying in his hands fire and a knife. And fire always represents judgment in the Bible. You look at the fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You look at what the Bible says about what the earth will finally be left to. God says he eventually will destroy it with fire. It is a sign of judgment. What about the knife? Well, the knife is an instrument of piercing. John 19.34 tells us one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood and water came out. In an incredible scene in the movie The Passion, when the soldier pierces the side of Jesus, and the blood and the water just sprays all over him. And in any other movie, any other situation, I would have gone, gross! But not in The Passion. In that moment, watching that happen, the blood and the water spurred out, pour out of his side, the sense was, wow! How cleansing. Well, Abraham carries the knife, this instrument of piercing. It's also interesting to note that the one carrying the fire and the knife is the Father. Now, I said a moment ago, we didn't kill Jesus. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. So who killed Jesus? And the Bible tells us, quite frankly, the Father did. What? Are we bordering on blasphemy here? You're telling me that God sacrificed Jesus? Yes, I am. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 tells us, We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And verse 10 goes on to say, The Lord was pleased to crush him. 
Not the Jews, not the Romans, not the Gentiles, not you and I, not the world. No, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. That phrase, was pleased, literally means desired. God desired to sacrifice his son. Why? Is this God of Christianity that bloodthirsty and brutal that he would sacrifice his son? That he would desire to do such an awful thing? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul makes it very clear for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God orchestrated the crucifixion. Jesus, if you read through the Gospel of John, especially the last half of it, Jesus was in complete control of the whole thing every step of the way. It's a stunning picture. An amazing portrait. Well, look at verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the wood and the fire, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound up his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Listen, the only way Isaac could have been bound by Abraham is willingly. This wasn't the child whose father tricked him into getting bound up and thrown on the altar. This was the young man, Isaac. By all accounts, folks, he was probably 33 years old at the time. And Abraham had to bind him up and put him on the altar. There is no way you're going to bind up a 33-year-old man, especially if you're over 100 yourself, unless that 33-year-old willingly is bound. Puts his arms back and says, I don't understand this, but okay, Father. There's an indication of Isaac's faith, by the way. Another great father of the faithful. But I can't help but think about Jesus again right here. Praying in the garden as the soldiers, soldiers arrive and an amazing thing happens. In fact, let me read it to you. If you want to flip there, John chapter 18. Beginning in the first verse. All the way over in the New Testament. other end of the Bible. It tells us in this dark moment that Jesus... John 18, verse 1, went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. And there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, verse 4, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, he knew, he knew. He went forth and he said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, watch this, Jesus the Nazarene, and he said to them, I am. Some of your Bibles render the word he. He doesn't say he. He says, I am. Ego a me in the Greek. In the Hebrew, it's the phrase Yahweh. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Yahweh, I am. Powerful statement. How do you know it was powerful? Well, look what happened. <laughs> it tells us that he said, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
This is a regiment of Romans with spears and shields and swords. A whole company of them. And one guy. One little Galilean. One little prophet from Nazareth standing there. And they say, hey, we're looking for Jesus. I am. Boom. They are on the ground. Something spiritual, powerful, amazing happened in that moment. When the name God is spoken and they fall back. But reading on it says, Jesus says again, whom do you seek? And they answered, and I, I would add a little more sheepishly this time, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To, to fulfill the word of which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into its sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now here's the point. Verse 12, The Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And I tell you, they couldn't have done it unless Jesus allowed it to happen. Unless Jesus went willingly, this man, this prophet, this son of God, whose very name threw the soldiers onto the ground, would not have been carried away against his will. And so like Isaac, Jesus went willingly. Matthew 26:53 tells us, Jesus says, Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, 12,000 angels. How then will those scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? In the same moment, Jesus says to Peter, Hey, put the sword away. Why? Because I can call the angels if I need help. I don't need you over there swinging a sword, Peter. Like you're going to do any good anyway. I can call the angels. I don't want to call the angels. I need to be bound. And Jesus goes willingly. Well, look back at Genesis chapter 22, verse 10. It tells us Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. And do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, a ram, amazing, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, a couple things to notice. The angel of the Lord here is the Old Testament voice of Jesus. Now, some of you who haven't been through the study, you're just going to have to take my word on it, but the angel of the Lord is the one, Jesus, who says, don't kill your son. What are you saying? I'm saying that 2,000 years our time, before it happened, that Jesus watched this portrait played out before him. That Jesus was aware of this, watching this whole thing from heaven. How do you really know it's Jesus? Well, the angel of the Lord called to him. And then down at the end of verse 12 it says, You have not withheld your only son from me. This is not just an angel. And the word angel there, some of you know, is messenger. The messenger of the Lord. Jesus often took that role in the Old Testament. He's watching the sacrifice, the preview of his own death as it unfolds. Now don't miss this. What did Abraham tell Isaac God would provide? What did he say God would provide? A what? A lamb. 
What showed up in the thicket? A ram. Abraham must have been wrong. God must have decided, no, I don't want to provide a lamb. Let's, let's get a ram in there. Ram, lamb, they both rhyme. What does it matter? No big deal, huh? Folks, God didn't provide a lamb as Abraham had prophesied. Not yet. Abraham's word in verse 8 are prophetic. They deal with Jesus in Genesis 22.8. Listen to this. Look back at that verse. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb. Oh, that's not right. The word for, not in the original language. So reading it without that word, God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself the lamb. Who's the lamb? God is the lamb. And Jesus later on, John the Baptist in John 1.29 said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Abraham said God will provide a lamb, he was right. And Abraham names the place Jehovah Jireh. Jireh meaning the Lord will provide. This place, this is the place where the Lord will provide. And God did provide, didn't he? A lamb by the name of Jesus. Now there's one last thing I want you to see this morning and it brings the whole thing into sharp focus. I I received a letter this last week from Greg Laurie's Harvest Ministries. And in the letter he was saying, you know, a lot of us have, have really been weary of the cross over the last several weeks. You see, in Harvest Ministries, what Greg Laurie has done has written a book called The Passion of the Christ, a follow-up to the movie that goes through and talks about Jesus' death and crucifixion. And all the people working with him at Harvest Ministries have been focused on this, on the crucifixion, what it means, getting these books out, looking at the pictures, watching the movie, thinking through it over and over and over. And Bill, or Greg Laurie writes that a guy in his office came walking by, and as they were preparing for Easter Sunday service, he said, Man, I really need Easter this year. I really could use the resurrection. Absolutely. Folks, listen. If we stay on Mount Moriah, if we leave Jesus on the cross, the whole story is a great tragedy. In fact, it's nothing but a tragedy. The reality is that Jesus did not stay on the cross. Verse 15 tells us, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham the second time from heaven. And he said to him, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you and greatly multiply your seed. Your seed. What's he talking about there? Watch. As the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, this is Jesus, All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so verse 18, Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Where's Isaac? Where'd he go? Verse 19, in your seed all the nations will be blessed. Or 18 and then 19, Abraham returned to his young men. Where's Isaac? Now you might say, well, maybe when he got the ropes off him, he just bolted because he didn't want that to happen again. Or maybe he just, I'm not going back with you, Dad. You're a little nuts. I can't take this. I don't think so. We're given a picture here, folks. There is a reason why the Bible leaves Isaac's name out. Where is Isaac? His disappearance is a picture of the resurrection. In fact, what's awesome about this is you're not going to see Isaac again in the historical narrative until chapter 24, two chapters from now, which is a fascinating study when he shows back up and who he goes to meet 
an amazing thing. I, I'm not going to get into it this morning. But for now, fast forward 2,000 years to another missing person. Luke chapter 24. And we're almost done this morning. I know you've got banquets and feasts and eggs and stuff to get to. Luke chapter 24 and verse 1. We have a missing person. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. This is real life, folks. This is not some imaginary story. The women have lost Jesus. They are mourning. They are weeping. And on this early morning, they come with burial spices to show more honor to this dead Jesus. At least the women had the faith to do that. The men were hiding out, scared to death that they were next. Verse 2 says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. It's missing. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, listen to this, Why do you seek the living among the dead? I love that line. It's great. The angels know what's going on here, but it's a beautiful line. Why do you seek the living among the dead? There's nothing but death here. This is a tomb. There was nothing but death on the cross. That was a tragedy. There's nothing but death on the top of Mount Moriah. That's where the altar was and, and the, the bloody leftovers, the remains, the burnt ashes of the ram. Nothing but death there. Isaac wasn't there anymore. He's gone. Jesus is gone. Why do you seek the living among the dead? This is awesome. goes on to say, He is not here. <laughs> But he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? Well, they remembered these words. And they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. Well, Peter ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Why did they have such a hard time believing? Why didn't Peter get it? Why didn't it all just click in? Because Peter was looking for the living among the dead. And folks, it's exactly what we do. When Cheryl, my wife, was a young girl, she got a hamster. Cute little thing. We've got two of them right now. They're driving me nuts. All night long, they're on the wheel. Round and round and round. Clickety, 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 clickety. You know, I'm just, ah, I'm going to shoot me a hamster. <laughs> There's another way to take them out, though. Okay? Cheryl's sister, Deanne, then three years old, maybe, loved that little hamster. Looked at that little hamster. Thought it was the cutest, fluffiest thing. She had to get her hands on that little hamster. And she reached into the cage when Cheryl was not in the room and took the little hamster out and just loved it. <laughs> and the little hamster was no more. <laughs> Folks, we work so hard at squeezing the life out of death. In the way that we live, we work so hard at taking dead things and trying to make them alive. We go about this in our lives, and it's amazing how silly we are. We try to squeeze, squeeze life out of our physical bodies. 
I'm going to work out more and I'm going to use more stuff on my face and somehow see a doctor can do something about the hair and I'm going to, I'm going to squeeze some life out of my body. Guess what? Got some news for you. We are all going to die. It's going to happen. Well, we try to squeeze life out of other people. My friends and family and, and, and books. Oh man, books. There are other people who know more about life than me. Really? That amazes me. The whole self-help industry. I know I've ragged on them before, but it just absolutely amazes me. Why would you go to someone else to find out how, how to live life? What do they know? We read books by people who are younger than we are and go, Oh, wow, what insight. <laughs> Come on. To my mind, there's only one self-help book worth reading, and that's by one who's eternal, who understands all the things of life. But we try to squeeze life out of other people. Guess what? Other people are going to die too. Right now in Washington, D.C., there is a display of sacred relics. Pieces of wood that they say came right off the cross. Pieces of stone that came right out of the tomb Jesus lived in. People are flocking, lining up to go see these relics. And one woman on the news this last week made a comment. She said, this is, it's so important that we show these things. This is as close as many people are going to get to touching Jesus. Cheryl and I were watching that and she said, why do we seek the living among the dead? Why do we go to the old relics of the cross? Why do people flock to Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah, to see where the cross was? Why do we build monuments to the cross, to something that represents death, but have a hard time believing in the life? Gang, it is the resurrected Jesus I believe in. Yes, He died on the cross for my sins. Yes, He went through that torture and that turmoil. Yes, it happened. And yes, that blood washes me clean of the things that I have done wrong, of my failures. But gang, He's alive. Why do we seek the living among the dead? Why do we sink back? You know the church does it. Sinks back into traditions, old dead things. Why? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If we have hoped in Christ for this life only, we are above all men to be most pitied. May I say clearly to you this morning that if, if you go to church at all, if you read the teachings of Jesus, if you do anything of a religious nature simply so your life can be better, you are a pitiable person. You are wasting your time. But if you're going to Jesus for life, and I'm not talking about this life, I am talking about the resurrected life, life eternal, that's worth your time, that's worth doing, that is worth our entire lives and selves, all that we are, man, that's worth it, that's where I want to go, that picture of Jesus resurrected in that big white family Bible, that's where I want to be, that's what I want to see, that's where I want to go. Jesus said in Revelation 1.17 and 18, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And listen, I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And this is important. And I hold in my hand the keys to death and Hades. But why, Lord? So you can lock us in? No, so he can let you out. If death holds any fear for you, the holder of the keys of death is Jesus Christ. And the fact that He resurrected 
And it breathes life into everything we do. Don't seek the living among the dead, folks. Abraham didn't. Man, when the sacrifice was over, he came back down to the young men and he went home. Isaac disappears. A picture of the resurrection shows up later. But folks, I know we got to stop. This, I, just, I wish there was a way I could convey to you how much God loves you. How much you are the most important person if you were the only person in the world right now. He would still die for you. He would still raise to life for you. And he would still hold out the keys and say, let me let you out. Allow me to save you. Let me give you life forever. And not this pitiable life right now. Folks, Easter, even this morning, we got up early, went down to the pond, enjoyed some songs and some prayer. It's just a sneak preview. Beautiful, wonderful, glorious day and we all have plans with family and friends, things we're going to be doing. Wonderful. It's a sneak preview. This day in Washington will give way to rain eventually. Maybe not today, tomorrow, the next day. We know it's going to cloud over. The joy we feel from time to time in our lives will wane. But the promise of resurrection, folks, it's eternal. And it's what Jesus offers. And if you want that eternal life, it's as simple as asking for it. Let's pray together. Dearest Lord Jesus, we've all shown up here this morning to hear something of this story, this resurrection story. It, it amazes us. It's incredible. Father, it's, it's life. It's reality. It's true. And my God, I just pray right now, if there is anyone among us this morning who has never given their lives to you, Jesus, as your side was pierced, would you pierce their heart? As your heart was broken, will you break open their heart to receive Jesus? This is so simple. This is not anything bizarre. But it's the wonderful love of a Father. Oh God, we, we need your love. We need to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that truth has come into the world and that we can have the opportunity to live forever. This morning, as I pray, if you have never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, it's so simple. Pray this after me. Dear Jesus, I'm not a perfect person. I, I am a sinner, and I know that better than anybody else. I don't need anybody else to judge me because I know in my own heart, in my own life, my failure and my sin. But Jesus, I, I believe that you died on that cross. I believe you suffered that brutality and pain. And yes, Lord, I believe that you resurrected the third day. You came back to life so that I, I could have eternal life too. And I want that, Lord. Would you come into my life and be my Lord and be my Savior? I confess my need to you and I ask that you would control me from here forward. That you would truly be my Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. And if you pray that prayer, you're in good standing with the Lord. Not by anything you've done, but by the, the sacrifice that He already gave. And there's more to it. There, there are wonderful things in store for you if you pray that. And I would ask you, could I just have all of our elders just stand up just for a moment, please? Rod in the back and here's Frank there's Mike back there in the Hawaiian shirt looking real tan because he went to Hawaii we're all really jealous and Russ is in the very back in the orange if you prayed that prayer would you either see myself or one of these five guys before you leave here today and talk to them about this first step into a relationship with Christ that you've made right now and I know the hour is late I don't even know how long I went this morning probably two hours but that's okay Mike would you come forward we're going to take communion together and then we'll let you go. I'm so glad you came this morning.